0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Twin Terrors, where I share stories of twins behaving badly. This is the second part of a two-part series about the Gibbon sisters, also known as the silent twins. If you haven't yet listened to part one, you need to listen to episode 131 from last week first. This is the story of twin girls living in Wales, who from a very young age were so bonded to one another that they created their own twin language to communicate. Later, they would refuse to speak or even associate with everyone but each other, including their own parents and siblings. Their self-imposed isolation would lead to increasingly antisocial behavior That would descend into criminal behavior. When we last left off, June and Jennifer Gibbons had been arrested after caught committing arson, which capped off their five week crime spree of vandalism and burglary. At this point in their story, they are incarcerated and awaiting trial, still refusing to speak to others, including the guards and other inmates. They have also begun blaming each other for the situation they now find themselves in. This is part two of Twin Terrors the case of June and Jennifer Gibbons, the silent twins. June and Jennifer Gibbons turned 19 years old as they waited for their trial to begin while incarcerated at the Pockel Church Remand Center. Still living in the fantasy world that they created in their minds, they pictured themselves gliding up to the witness stand like heroines in a 1940s film, with their hair up in elegant style and wearing chic, flowing skirts. June pictured telling the judge and jury her life story, how her evil twin had kept her imprisoned and ruined her life. Jennifer resented her sister for her desire to break free and make independent decisions. They both wrote in their journals about the smoldering anger they felt for one another, but they also wrote of their desperation to be together and never be separated. They continued to battle, sometimes attacking each other physically. They would then be separated, but they could not stand being apart. They became inconsolable or catatonic when separated to the point where the staff could see no choice but to reunite them. They would be fined two pounds for attacking each other, return to their cell, and then the scenario would repeat itself again. Meanwhile, their attorneys were challenged with the task of defending them. This was no easy feat, as they would barely speak to their defense attorney. Also, there was overwhelming evidence that the girls had committed the vandalism and arson, not the least of which being the detailed diaries found in their rooms that meticulously outlined their five-week crime spree. The defense sent a doctor to evaluate the girls to determine if they were competent to stand trial. He began questioning them about the things they had written in their diaries. They had mentioned drinking and taking drugs. Were they intoxicated when they committed their criminal acts? The girls remained silent. They had also written their feelings of emptiness after the Kennedy boys moved away. Did they feel depressed? Suicidal? Still, there was no answer. Finally, at one point in the questioning, One of the girls opened her mouth as if to respond. Immediately, her twin flew at her, striking her and scratching her on her face and neck until they had to be forcibly separated. The doctor determined that the girls were suffering from a mental illness. He diagnosed them with psychopathic disorder. He felt they needed treatment and should be sent to a psychiatric hospital, not prison. The defense finally had something they could use. They decided to ask the court to sentence the Gibbon sisters to a psychiatric facility for treatment, in exchange for their plea of guilty. After some searching for an appropriate placement for the girls, the defense determined that the only psychiatric hospital with a secure unit able to house these young women was Broadmoor. Broadmoor Hospital is a high-security psychiatric facility founded in 1863. Originally named Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, it has housed some of Britain's most notorious criminals, serial killers Gregory Davis, Kenneth Erskine, and Peter Sutcliffe, have all spent time at Broadmoor. Ronald Cray, one half of the infamous Cray twins, was also a patient, as was Charles Salvador, a.k.a. Charles Bronson, known as the most violent inmate in Britain. The court and attorneys were not sure what to do with these silent twins. They were confessed criminals, burglars and arsonists. They acted out violently, albeit only upon each other, and they were unwilling or unable to cooperate in the general prison population setting the court came up with a solution to provide them with the label of psychopaths and send them to Broadmoor for treatment. What that would entail and how successful it would be was not really their concern. They simply had to find a placement for them. The prison doctor consulted with the doctors at Broadmoor, and the psychiatric facility agreed to accept their transfer and take the girl's case. He then met with June and Jennifer to tell them the good news, describing Broadmoor as a state-of-the-art facility that was fully staffed with nurses and therapists that helped them with their unique issues. The doctors sold the place as a community, with opportunities to walk freely on the campus, have their hair done at the salon provided for patients, attend dances, and spend time in leisure activities of their choice. June and Jennifer began fantasizing about their new life after they were transferred to Broadmoor. They envisioned themselves sitting in the garden, reading and sipping on lemonade, until the dinner bell was rung. They also began to dream about getting real help with their communication problem, and assistance in learning how to converse and socialize with others. Jennifer wrote, I hope there is a gym there and a swimming pool. I'm sure they have discos. I'll be going every night. It'll be like living in a hotel. We'll eat in small groups, just like a family. The twins were finally to come before a judge on May 27, 1982. They had agreed to plead guilty to all the charges against them, with the understanding that they'd be sent to Broadmoor Hospital and not to prison. While standing before the bench, the court clerk read out the charges to each girl in turn. That you did jointly, between the 2nd and 5th day of October of 1981, at Haverford West in the county of Dyfed, enter a certain building, namely Portfield Adult Training Center, as a trespasser, and steal a transistor radio, an electric clock, a pair of scissors, and a carton of Play-Doh of value together of 40 and a half pounds, the property of Portfield Adult Training Center. Now came the hard part. The clerk then asked, What say you, Jennifer Lorraine Gibbons, guilty or not guilty? Jennifer had practiced her response in her mind for weeks. She pictured herself standing tall and proud, with her head held high and responding, Guilty, in a loud, clear voice that would ring throughout the courtroom. Instead, she mumbled almost unintelligibly, but the court deduced her plea as guilty and entered it into the record. June was then also asked to respond. She answered in almost a whisper, and Jennifer judged her performance as inferior to her own. No one could hear, she wrote in her journal about her sister's response. My voice changed all the time. One moment low, another full of expressed proudness. June's was flat and monotonous. All 16 joint charges were read out by the clerk, and the girls answered guilty to the charges of theft, vandalism, and arson. On hearing their list of crimes read out in open court, Jennifer wrote, I felt quite proud. To tell you the truth, I was rather enjoying it. It was a day to remember for me when I'm old. Then in order to illustrate for the judge the twin state of mind at the time of their crime spree, the barrister for the prosecution entered June's diary into evidence. It is a somewhat bizarre document, he told the judge. June in particularly reveled in the offenses and she expressed particular delight in the damage caused by the fire. She showed pleasure in the publicity which resulted from such incidents. He read out the passage in which June wrote, I'm going to be the biggest arsonist around. The only people who had attended the twins' court hearing were their parents, Aubrey and Gloria, and their former therapist at Eastgate School, Tim Thomas. June felt sad that her parents were hearing the upsetting details of their crimes. For that, she did feel remorse, and she recorded it in her diary. Aubrey and Gloria still didn't know what would happen to their daughters or whether they'd be sent to prison or not. They didn't believe that they were bad girls, but they had just made mistakes and some poor decisions. June and Jennifer had always been well-behaved, their parents thought, and never caused any problems. Aubrey and Gloria's hope was that they would be put on probation. They did not know about the plans to have them committed to a psychiatric hospital. The psychiatrist who'd assessed the girls at Pucklechurch was next called to the stand. He was asked if the girls were suffering from a mental illness, psychopathic disorder, subnormality, or severe subnormality, of such a nature or degree as to warrant her detention in a hospital for medical treatment. The doctor answered in the affirmative. He was then asked what length of time of commitment to treatment might be required. He answered, It is very difficult to forecast this until we have the opportunity for a prolonged assessment. One would certainly envisage it would be for a number of years. Arrangements have been made for their admission to Broadmoor Hospital within 28 days upon hearing this, the twins' father rose to his feet in alarm. Years? He must have heard wrong, he thought, and the name Broadmoor made his blood run cold. He had heard of the infamous institution, about how dangerous criminals, rapists, murderers, and baby killers were locked up there. Now they wanted to send his two daughters there? They must be joking. These were girls, mere children, he thought, not hardened criminals. The doctor was being questioned by the judge as to whether Broadmoor provided programs appropriate for adolescents, and he was assured that they did. The doctor further explained that Broadmoor employed medical staff and speech therapists trained to work with the girls to resolve their specific issues. He also said that Broadmoor also provided the security the girls required, in his opinion. He described the violence the Remand Center staff had witnessed between the girls, adding that June, in particular, had also exhibited suicidal tendencies the doctor concluded his testimony by stating that a facility like Broadmoor would be the best solution for the safety of others and the girls as well. The judge's ruling was that June and Jennifer Gibbons should be sent to a secure psychiatric facility under Section 60 of the Mental Health Act. They would be detained at Broadmoor as there was a, quote, danger of them committing further offenses if released, unquote. It was also ruled that their tendencies to be dangerous to themselves and to each other necessitated special restrictions Set out in the Mental Health Act for the protection of the public. He further stated that, quote, in view of the difficulty of prognosis, I think the order I make must be without limit of time. Unquote. In other words, for their crimes, mostly misdemeanors for which those their age would normally serve a one or two year maximum sentence, June and Jennifer Gibbons would be sent to Broadmoor indefinitely, in what could, in theory, become a life sentence. The girls had a heartfelt, if awkward, goodbye with their parents before they were transferred to Broadmoor. Both Aubrey and Gloria, shocked at the sentence, put on a happy face for their girls. They spoke of the good food they must be eating since they had put on weight in jail, and talked of the nice clothes they would send them to wear in their new home at Broadmoor. Gloria ended with what she hoped would comfort the twins. It won't seem so long, she said. You've got your whole life ahead. You just get better, and you'll be home in no time. Upon arriving at Broadmoor, June and Jennifer saw an improvement over Pucklechurch. The food was better, and they were served in a proper dining hall with real utensils. They lived in villas that overlooked the pretty countryside. No bells rang to announce it was time to move from their cells to meals or exercise like at Pucklechurch. Instead, announcements were made over loudspeakers calling them to the dining hall or informing them that meal had arrived. They had more privacy, including their own bathroom facilities. They were allowed to pick out clothes from the hospital storeroom—shoes, dresses, and coats. They also had the opportunity to play games at night and were offered snacks during these recreation periods. At first, it was how they'd pictured their life at Broadmoor would be. While they were placed in separate rooms, the rooms were adjoined so they could see each other from their windows. But only a few days in, things began to go south. This time, Jennifer was the one making the most effort to conform to the rules and be cooperative but June began to grow increasingly anxious at having to eat in the dining hall in front of strangers. She started walking slowly and then refusing to move altogether. The nurses had to take her by her arms to propel her from room to room. She stopped making eye contact with others and went back into her zombie-like state. This enraged Jennifer, who wrote, June is trying to ruin my reputation, my life. Unless June got with the program... Jennifer despaired that they would never be treated as normal and would be locked away forever at Broadmoor. Even so, Jennifer felt helpless to break out and be independent of her twin. Seething at June, she nevertheless began to join her in resisting, refusing to move or speak to the staff. Both now had to be dragged to the rooms and lifted into bed like at Pucklechurch. Jennifer's anger made her lash out in a way she never had before. One night, instead of attacking her sister— she attacked a nurse who was tucking her into bed. Jennifer was sent to Lancaster Ward 1, an intensive care unit reserved for the most violent female offenders. The girls had started at York House, two levels above Lancaster Ward 1. Now to return to the relative freedom she had originally enjoyed, Jennifer would have to work her way back up through good behavior. Separated from her sister, June fell into a depression. Two weeks after Jennifer was moved to Ward 1, June tried to choke herself to death in her room by tying a belt around her neck and pulling it tight. When this was discovered, it was June's turn to be sent to Ward 1, while Jennifer was allowed to return to York House. Both girls continued to deteriorate during their separation. Finally, after a month, a reprieve of sorts was given to them. They would still be separated, but were allowed to spend exercise and recreation times together. June worked her way up to Ward 2 but still remained silent and depressed. Jennifer was making efforts to communicate with others, but wasn't particularly successful. She was so out of practice in speaking aloud that she had trouble making herself understood. However, she still took advantage of the opportunity to work, learning to sew stuffed animals that would then be sold in Broadmoor's gift shop. Perhaps these toys reminded her of all the good times she had playing Happy Families with June and her little sister Rosie. Discovering that neither girl had progressed very far in their education, a teacher from Broadmoor came to assess them to determine if they could attend school. When the girls only mumbled or remained silent during her questions, she gave up, telling them they'd have to try a lot harder if they wanted to be allowed to attend Broadmoor school. The twins also underwent physical examinations and were given a blood test. For the first time, doctors confirmed that they were identical twins, something their mother had always denied. Gloria had always told others that June and Jennifer were not identical, but fraternal twins. The girls' social skills and ability to communicate continued to decline rapidly. Jennifer herself wondered if they would become the resident zombies of Broadmoor and perhaps never be allowed to leave. They then received a visitor, and their situation began to change. A journalist named Marjorie Wallace had written an article about the Gibbons twins for the Sunday Times that Dr. Boyce tour. Broadmoor's medical officer, took notice of. He contacted her and invited her to visit the twins to interview them. Marjorie would become a frequent visitor and grow close to June and Jennifer over the next three years. Other than Marjorie, the twins only received infrequent visits from their family members, who lived quite a distance away. Their brother David visited but came alone, as his wife didn't think it was a proper place to take their children. Greta also visited a couple of times, and of course, when they could, their parents made the journey. The girls were always very happy and grateful to see them. Dr. Le Couture thought Marjorie as a journalist could encourage the girls to begin writing again. She brought them writing course materials and books to motivate them to write. They were enthusiastic at first, but never started another novel or even wrote short stories. This may have been partially due to the medication they were required to take for their psychosis. Such as it was. The antipsychotic drugs they were prescribed tended to make them feel less motivated and unable to focus. But both June and Jennifer continued to keep very detailed daily journals. They would eventually allow Marjorie access to these writings, as well as poems they composed while at Broadmoor. It would give her a unique insight into June and Jennifer that no one else had. Another reason the girls had no time to devote to novel writing was that over time, they were able to earn more privileges including attending Broadmoor's socials, dances, and bingo nights. During these opportunities to socialize, they were allowed to mingle with patients from the male ward of the hospital. June and Jennifer looked forward to this, as both were still interested in dating. June especially dreamed of getting married and having a family of her own. But just as in the outside world, both girls soon became interested in one young man and were once again in competition with each other for his attention. Because of this, Whenever they were in the young man's company, they looked miserable and fixated on one another, seething with jealousy. The young man believed that due to their silence and coldness, they must not be that interested in him, and he eventually got bored and gave up trying to talk to them. Afterwards, the girls blamed each other for driving away their true love. Later, they were shocked to learn that the young man had been sent to Broadmoor for the crime of manslaughter. But once they let the reality set in that most of the patients at Broadmoor, especially the male patients, were violent criminals who'd committed murder, rape, or assaults, they began to enjoy their bad girl label once again. They'd first tried on this persona when they began drinking and taking drugs with the Kennedy boys, and later when they started hanging out with hoodlums in Haverford West, just before embarking on their crime spree. Now they realized that they had been sent to Broadmoor because they were considered the worst of the worst criminals. They took pride in the fact that one of their neighbors at Broadmoor was the famous gangster and murderer, Ronnie Cray. But the girls were still refusing to cooperate. The staff became incensed that these girls were completely silent and antisocial on the ward, but would dance and chat happily with men at Broadmoor's socials. The fact that they were being willfully disobedient caused the staff to use a firmer hand to deal with these so-called silent twins. They began to insist the girls speak clearly and loudly like they knew they could. If the girls refused to cooperate, their privileges were threatened. This just caused the twins to become more obstinate and find other ways to infuriate the staff. June began to plaster a sly smile on her face every time she was given orders and continued to refuse to speak or move. This frustrated the nurses and therapists even more than her downcast gaze. As a result, the girls were punished, and their freedom was restricted even further. In May 1983, the twins had been at Broadmoor for almost a year, when they decided to take revenge on their jailers. Jennifer tripped an alarm, and when a nurse came running, she attacked her and grabbed for her keys. The girls had been separated for some time, so June was not implicated in this incident. Jennifer was returned to Ward 1 and put in isolation for a week for this serious offense. She began to resent June because she thought she would join her in defying the guards and also be sent to the lockdown ward. When this didn't happen, Jennifer felt betrayed. A week later, Jennifer was moved out of isolation and promoted to another ward. Unbeknownst to her, June had finally committed her own attack against a nurse and had herself been sent to isolation. Dr. Le had had enough of these games the twins were playing and met with both girls. He showed them the paperwork that he'd already completed and told them if they continued to be uncooperative would result in one of them being transferred to Rampton Special Hospital. This threat had the desired effect. Both girls turned on each other as neither wanted to be sent away. The doctor had discovered the key to getting the twins to cooperate. He explained to Marjorie Wallace, quote, if we move one onto a better ward so that she bypasses her twin, the other girl may cooperate. Keeping the girls separated and in competition with each other for more privileges and the better room, the staff was able to gain more cooperation, but it was only by one twin at a time. If Jennifer was working towards making progress, becoming more social and following the rules, June became silent and reverted back into a catatonic state. Then when June became more compliant, it would be Jennifer who would become silent and depressed, refusing to work with her therapists again. Over time, while on a regimen of medication that caused them to remain calm and somewhat compliant, life began to take on a routine for the twins. At times, when they were willing to cooperate, they met with their speech therapist and attended classes. On the days they refused, they were left in their rooms to sit and brood so as not to waste the staff's time. More than once, the girls fell in love with another patient at Broadmoor, but every time it was for the same man sparking a competition. In 1986, they both became infatuated with a man named Danny. Even after Jennifer discovered that he had murdered his girlfriend by stabbing her, this did not deter her from deciding that she was in love and wanted to marry him. At the same time, June had been talking to another man, but then also began talking to Danny, and within days they were both exchanging love letters with him. Life continued at Broadmoor with the twins residing separately, but allowed to see each other during recreation times and in classes. Jennifer worked making stuffed animals. June took classes in typing in English. They both attended church and sang in the hospital choir. They had since been diagnosed as schizophrenic by the doctors at Broadmoor. This seems less like an informed diagnosis than a label that was decided upon because the given sisters fit no clearly defined category of mental illness. They were put on a strong cocktail of prescriptions including antipsychotics, antidepressants, and anti-anxiety medications. June and Jennifer Gibbons remained at Broadmoor for 11 years, before it was decided that they were eligible for transfer to a less secure facility. They had just passed their 29th birthdays. When they received the news, they would be sent together to a new facility, which had just been opened in Wales, very near their parents' home. As they awaited an opening for two beds in the secure unit of Caswell Clinic, they began to contemplate their futures. But while planning for the next phase of their lives, They also became obsessed with the idea of death. The staff noticed a bizarre daily occurrence between the girls. They would meet outside each morning and stand shouting to each other about which of them would die first. You see, the existential crisis the twins had struggled with for most of their lives was the belief that together they could not survive, but neither could they separate. They had come to the conclusion that only one of them could live, otherwise they would both perish. One twin would have to give her life in sacrifice for the other. But the question was, who would live and who would die? One would have to be stronger than the other to carry out the sacrifice, but they couldn't decide who was the strongest of the pair. Marjorie Wallace continued to visit June and Jennifer, and on her last visit with them before they were transferred, she remarked that they both seemed to be in good spirits, laughing and joking with her. She noticed that there was now a marked difference in their appearance that had not been present before. June looked healthier, her face filled out after gaining a few pounds, which made her look more mature than her twin. Jennifer was much thinner than Marjorie had ever seen her, almost gaunt in appearance. Marjorie asked her if she was unwell. Jennifer said she was not, but mentioned several times how urgently she wanted to leave Broadmoor. She assured her that she would be fine when she was able to leave. But Jennifer was also still talking about death. In a casual and almost nonchalant way, she told Marjorie, I'm going to die. Marjorie asked what made her say that, and Jennifer answered, I just know. I just know. As the week of March 8, 1993 began, the twins were subjected to a battery of physical and psychological tests leading up to their transfer to Wales. Jennifer said she felt unwell and stopped eating. She appeared tired, almost exhausted, but still attended church on Sunday the 7th, where she sang in the choir. On Monday, the day before they were to be transported to the Caswell Clinic, Jennifer tried to eat but could not keep anything down. The staff and her sister believed it was most likely a case of nerves due to the impending transfer. Jennifer was still expressing excitement about leaving Broadmoor. The next morning, Tuesday, June 9th, June and Jennifer boarded a bus along with two nurses to make the 225-kilometer or 140-mile journey to the new facility. After just a couple of miles in, Jennifer whispered to June, Oh, June, at long last, we're out. She then placed her head on her twin's shoulder and leaned against her. June thought she was just tired as the nurses had told them they might get drowsy since they had been given pills to stave off car sickness. Jennifer remained silent throughout the rest of the trip. The bus arrived at the Caswell clinic and Jennifer was so groggy that she could not walk or talk. She was carried into the ward and placed onto her bed. Her vital signs, including her blood pressure, were taken but seemed normal. June was taken to a separate ward. Two hours later, June asked to see her sister. She arrived at her sister's room and was alarmed that Jennifer was breathing very fast and seemed to be so weak that when she tried to speak, she could not form any words. A blood test was taken upon Jennifer's arrival, and now the results revealed a serious problem. Jennifer was suffering from a breakdown of the platelets of the blood or a hemolytic crisis. Her eyes were open, but she was unresponsive. She was rushed to the Princess of Wales Hospital. She arrived at 5.30 p.m., but her heart stopped and she was pronounced dead at just after 6 p.m. June had been allowed to follow Jennifer to the hospital and was sitting in the waiting room when the doctor arrived to tell her that her twin was dead. June became distraught and began screaming in grief. Just a few minutes later, she was able to calm herself. After requesting to see her sister, June was taken to the gurney where Jennifer's body lay. She held Jennifer's hand and kissed her forehead, stroking her hair for half an hour. June was anxious that her parents would find out from someone else that Jennifer had died. She felt that she needed to be the one to inform them of her sister's passing. Aubrey and Gloria Gibbons had been contacted and soon arrived at the Caswell Clinic. June met them there to tell them the tragic news. She spent time consoling her parents before returning with them to the hospital. They said goodbye to their daughter, still in shock over her sudden death. Aubrey grieved by blaming himself wondering what he could have done differently. He wondered if joining the RAF and moving so frequently had contributed to the twins' problems. Gloria grieved by becoming angry. She blamed the staff at Broadmoor, the nurses who'd accompanied her daughters on the trip to Wales, and the clinic where Jennifer had arrived so ill for not intervening sooner to save her daughter. An autopsy performed on Jennifer Gibbons determined that she had died of acute myocarditis a gross inflammation and degeneration of the heart muscle. The inflammation was so severe that the muscle had been completely destroyed. Myocarditis rarely causes death, the attending pathologist explained. There was no evidence of a poison or drugs in her system, nor did he find evidence of a virus that may have caused the inflammation. The cause of Jennifer's death remains a mystery. June Gibbons remained at the Caswell Clinic for a year. At first, she said that she felt a type of release once Jennifer was gone, even though she also mourned her absence. June also feared that her twin would somehow find a way to come for her. Her fear was that she would also die and be forced to reunite with her twin. But as weeks and then months went by, June began to try doing things that she never had before. She cooperated with her therapists, followed the facility rules, and even tried to communicate more with others. Before long, June made progress and began speaking. Even her speech impediment seemed less severe. June explained her sister's death to Marjorie Wallace this way. We were war-weary. It had been a long battle. Someone had to break the vicious cycle. She is convinced that Jennifer sacrificed her own life to set her free. And yet June still is conflicted in her feelings for her twin. Jennifer is the one who gave me mental illness... It was Jennifer's mind making me mentally sick. She poisoned my mind. When she died, after a few months, I came into my own. She let go of me, and I got my life back. I was born again. The Caswell Clinic first granted June a conditional discharge. She was released from the facility, but was required to return every two weeks to be given her medication and see her psychiatrist. She began attending cooking classes and made plans to start writing again while living with her parents. She began to socialize more, now willing to speak to not only her family, but strangers as well. And she also began dating. By 2008, June Gibbons had been living on her own in West Wales for almost 15 years. Residing not far from her parents, she spent time with her family members every weekend. She had given up her ambition of becoming a famous novelist. Now that I can talk, I no longer need to write, she explained. No longer under psychiatric care, nor taking any medications, June no longer exhibits signs of mental illness. She lives a quiet life and has remained single. In 2016, her sister Greta was interviewed on a British news program and said she blames Broadmoor for Jennifer's early death. She believes that the twins should never have been sent to such a place, nor kept locked away for over a decade. Greta believes this contributed to Jennifer's poor health and subsequent death at the age of 29. The story of The Silent Twins became famous in Europe, and their story was turned into a rock opera in France. In 1992, just before they were transferred to Wales, June and Jennifer had been allowed to travel to London to see it performed. In 1986, a book titled The Silent Twins, written by Marjorie Wallace, was published and became a bestseller a television movie based on the book was broadcast in the U.K. A play based on Wallace's book, titled Speechless, debuted in London in 2011. Although June and Jennifer Gibbons received many diagnoses and labels over their lifetime, including psychotics, selective mutes, and schizophrenics, there was never a definitive consensus among their doctors, therapists, and psychiatrists as to the true nature of their affliction. But we can speculate as to the psychological reasons behind their behavior. It's common knowledge that twins can form strong codependent relationships with one another. Sometimes this is unconsciously facilitated by their families. Twins are often given similar names, dressed alike, and referred to as the twins rather than their individual names. I've been guilty of doing this throughout this episode, I realize. Gloria Gibbons had a pet name for June and Jennifer, referring to them as her twinnies. When twins are infants and toddlers, they have no need to use formal language to communicate with one another. They, perhaps even before birth, form a secret language of subtle signals, body language, and other forms of nonverbal communication. As they grow up, others require them to use language to communicate their wants and needs, and then speech is formed. Somehow, June and Jennifer were able to delay this milestone For such an extended period of time that for them, it became unnecessary to speak or even form attachments to other members of the family. When they decided they didn't want or need any other attachments, they found ways to block out everyone who they considered to be extraneous parents, teachers, siblings by using their silence and defensive body language to reject these relationships. Over time, people became frustrated by what June later described as their games and left them to their own devices. They then retreated further into themselves and their fantasy world. But perhaps the stories they created for this fantasy world gave clues to another factor at play in the psychology of the Gibbon sisters narcissistic personality traits. By the time they were 12 or 13 years old, they clearly understood that their behavior was causing distress to others, including their parents and siblings. Yet they felt perfectly justified in exhibiting rude, selfish, and downright bizarre and embarrassing behavior in order to exert their will over the needs of others. Their behavior at their sister Greta's wedding is one such example. Although they both possessed a mild speech impediment, they were very clearly capable of speaking when they chose to. They knew that their parents worried about the refusal to speak and that they were hurt and confused when they could not find a way to connect with their children. Still, the girls continued to remain silent and even refused to occupy the same room as their family members. Their goals all centered around becoming famous or obtaining celebrity status. They didn't want to become writers. They wanted to be, quote, famous novelists who wrote bestsellers. When the girls began committing crimes, they relished the thought of being written about in the papers. June wrote about being the biggest arsonist around. They often envisioned themselves as heroines, playing roles as if they'd been cast in a soap opera rather than living in the real world. They had romanticized notions of committing crimes, going to prison and being sent to a psychiatric facility that had almost no basis in reality. They exhibited more than a few traits of classic narcissistic personality disorder, including a grandiose sense of self-importance, living in a fantasy world that supports that delusion of grandeur, the constant need for praise and admiration, a sense of entitlement, and the ability to exploit others without guilt or shame. But what's fascinating about the Gibbon sisters is that they were two individuals who considered themselves two halves of one whole, but who were in constant competition with one another to be the best. They competed to be the best writer, to be the prettiest, the smartest, the most loved, and the most talented. They also competed for romance, often choosing the same person to fall in love with. Their journals described their belief that if they were to be separated, they would perish, but together they would forever remain stuck in the grip of mental illness. We made each other sick, June would say. They would play games while locked in their prison cell, where each morning they would lie for hours waiting for the other to be the first one to move. June wrote, So I lay as though paralyzed by her stillness. And where will it all end? In death? In separation? I cannot help it. She cannot help it. For only one should lose, not both. This is the game. Like June explained, there could only be one winner. After months of arguments and debates over who would win and who would lose, Jennifer conceded. She would be the loser and allow June to survive. June, she knew, had always been the one people liked. On her own, June could learn to live with others. Jennifer was the more antisocial of the two and wasn't sure she would survive without June. She thought June as the stronger one who could survive her twin's death. It seems she was right. June had Jennifer's headstone engraved with a poem she composed. It reads, We once were two, we two made one. We no more two, through life be one. Rest in peace. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd like to hear what you think about this story. Were June and Jennifer Gibbons mentally ill, or did they exhibit a personality disorder? What do you think caused them to behave in such bizarre ways? and to refuse to speak for so many years. You can share your thoughts with me by email at esther at truecrimepodcast.com or on the Facebook group, the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page. If you're listening to this the day it releases on Tuesday, June 11th, I'm holding a listener meetup tonight in New York City. Come hang out with me at the historic Algonquin Hotel Lobby Lounge. I'll be there from 7 to 11 p.m. Get more details on the Facebook page or in the show notes. Don't forget this weekend, June 14th and 15th, is the Toronto True Crime Film Festival. Get all the details at torontotruecrimefilmfestival.com. And I hope to see you there. Until next time, be good to one another.